The year is 1920, and big changes in the way people live in the U.S. are underway. The 19th Amendment is ratified, finally giving some 26 million American women the right to vote. Prohibition starts, banning the manufacture, sale, or transportation of alcohol anywhere in the country. The census finds that for the first time in American history, more people live in cities than in rural areas. And that year, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama went to Eugene O'Neill's Beyond the Horizon, a drama about two brothers who have differing dreams for their lives, but whose love for the same woman brings disaster to all three of them. My name is Jan Simpson. Welcome to All the Drama, a podcast about the plays and musicals that have won American theater's highest accolade, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. This episode marks the first anniversary of All the Drama, and when I thought about doing something special to mark the occasion, I knew that it had to involve Eugene O'Neill who won four Pulitzer Prizes and is the only American playwright to have won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Beyond the Horizon is the first full play O'Neill wrote, and it is arguably the first serious American drama. But nowadays, O'Neill sometimes gets a bad rap. His plays tend to be long and melodramatic. His women can seem weak and whiny. His dialogue uses now unacceptable language, including the N-word. And yet, I've always had a soft spot for O'Neill, whose personal story is as dramatic as any play, and heavily influenced many of those he wrote. O'Neill was born on October 16, 1888, in a hotel room right in the middle of what is now Times Square. As he chronicled in his famous autobiographical play, Long Day's Journey into Night, O'Neill's parents were the famous actor James O'Neill, who made a fortune and wrecked his career, playing the Count of Monte Cristo, and James's long-suffering wife, Mary Ellen, who was known as Ella. In real life, Eugene was the youngest of their three sons. The middle boy, Edmund, would die before he was three. The surviving sons, James and Eugene, spent their boyhoods at various boarding schools when their parents were out on tour, and their summers at the family home in New London, Connecticut, which is currently the site of the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center. When he was 18, Eugene started college at Princeton, but he attended few classes and instead spent his time there drinking and carousing. He left or was thrown out after just a year and joined his father on tour, where he did a little bit of acting and a little bit of stage managing, none of it very well. His parents eventually sent him to Honduras to look after some mining interests his mother had inherited. He came home a year later after contracting malaria, but by then he'd been seduced by the life of the sea 
And for the next couple of years, the young O'Neill divided his time between sailing out on commercial ships, living in waterfront dives, and drinking a lot. That seafaring period of his life, although not the drinking, ended in 1912 when he contracted tuberculosis. During the five months he spent recovering in a sanatorium, O'Neill began writing plays. When he got out, he supported himself and his playwriting by working for a local newspaper. But in 1914, he persuaded his notoriously stingy father to pay for him to enroll in George Pierce Baker's playwriting course at Harvard so that he could further hone his skills. But O'Neill only spent one semester there. By that time, he had taken up with a group of Greenwich Village artists, writers, and activists who hung out in the same bars he favored. Some of them including the journalists John Reed and Louise Bryant, the playwright Susan Glaspell and her director husband George Clamp Cook, also spent time on Cape Cod, where they had formed an amateur acting company they called the Provincetown Players. The first play O'Neill shared with them was something he made up about an American filmmaker who finances a Mexican revolution just so that he can film some battle scenes. The group wasn't impressed, but they felt differently when he returned less than a month later with a one-act play based on his time at sea that he called Bound East for Cardiff. The players produced that play, and he quickly became one of their go-to playwrights. Beyond the Horizon was written during one of O'Neill's summers in Provincetown. He said it was inspired by a sailor he knew who kept complaining that he never should have left home. The memory of that unhappy sailor caused O'Neill to wonder what might have happened if the man had stayed on his family farm. O'Neill turned one answer to that question into the story of the brothers Robert and Andrew Mayo, who are the main characters in Beyond the Horizon. The bookish Robert dreams of exploring the world beyond the New England farm where they grew up and looks forward to joining their sea captain uncle on his voyages to different countries around the world. Meanwhile, Andrew loves both the land and their next-door neighbor Ruth and wants nothing more than to stay on the farm, marry Ruth, and raise a family on their combined farms. But when Robert impulsively confesses his love for Ruth, and she, momentarily flattered by his attention, chooses him over Andrew, the brothers trade places, with Robert staying on the farm and Andrew going out to sea, despite the fact that neither is suited for his new role. Over the course of the play, Ruth and Robert's marriage will fall apart, the farm will fall into near ruin, and Andrew's attempt to be a man of the world will also end in failure. Friends sent the finished script of Beyond the Horizon to the producer John D. Williams, who liked the play, but wasn't sure it was commercial. So Williams tested the play by scheduling a couple of special matinee performances at a downtown theater. When they quickly sold out, he moved the show to Broadway. It opened at the Morosco Theater on February 3, 1920. Both of O'Neill's parents were there, and according to O'Neill's biographer Robert M. Dowling, James O'Neill wept with pride throughout the entire performance. He would die six months later at the age of 72. O'Neill's father wasn't the only one moved by his play. 
The next day, the New York Times theater critic Alexander Walcott hailed it as, quote, an absorbing, significant, and memorable tragedy, so full of meat that it makes most of the remaining fare seem like the merest meringue, end quote. The play ran for a then-healthy 111 performances, and that spring came the news that it won the Pulitzer. Beyond the Horizon was only the second play to win a Pulitzer Prize, since the committee had skipped awarding one in 1919 because it didn't consider anything to be worthy enough. The jurors did worry that O'Neill's play was not uplifting, as the Pulitzer request it said the winners should be. But they insisted that, quote, Beyond the Horizon by Eugene O'Neill has no competitor as the outstanding play of the season, end quote. As O'Neill's biographer Robert Dowling tells it, O'Neill, who had never heard of the then just two-year-old prize, wasn't impressed. He wrote a friend complaining, oh God, a damn medal, and one of those presentation ceremonies. I won't accept it. But he changed his mind when he learned that the honor came with a $1,000 check. Beyond the Horizon made O'Neill's name but it is now rarely produced, and it doesn't seem to draw positive reviews when it is done. A 2012 production by the Eclipse Theatre in Chicago drew decidedly mixed notices. One critic sniffed that, quote, This first full-length effort is noteworthy for landing O'Neill his first Pulitzer Prize for drama, but by today's dramatic standards, beyond academic curiosity, not much else. End quote. The New York Times' Ben Brantley panned a 2012 Irish rep production here in New York, dismissing the play as schematic and contrived. I liked the play when I read it, but unlike so many of O'Neill's other plays, Beyond the Horizon has never been turned into a feature film. However, a stage version recorded for public television's Great Performances series is available. And in 1983, the composer Nicholas Flagello adapted it for an opera. But last fall, the Eugene O'Neill Foundation in Danville, California, staged the play on the grounds where O'Neill and his third wife, the actress Carlotta Monterey, lived from 1937 to 1944. And I was very lucky when that production's director, Eric Hayes, who was also the artistic director of the Eugene O'Neill Foundation, agreed to talk with me about it. Hello, Eric Hayes. Welcome to All the Drama. Oh, thank you very much. Nice to be here. I thought before we started talking um, about Beyond the Horizon, I would ask you to explain the difference between your O'Neill Foundation, which is in California, and the O'Neill Theater Center in Connecticut. Okay, sure. The The Eugene O'Neill Foundation is a partner organization with the National Park Service. A lot of people associate Eugene O'Neill with the East Coast, and, and rightly so. There's a lot of history there for him. But uh, in late in his career, he actually moved to California, and he built a home, and they called it Dow House. And uh, uh, that's where he wrote his last six or seven plays. They, uh, most of the plays that people know today, The uh, Long Day's Journey Tonight, Moon for the Misbegotten, The Iceman Cometh. And because it's such an important 
physical site because of the work he did here. Uh, it was preserved uh, in uh, the hills above Danville, California, as a national park. The foundation that I'm with, I, where I'm the artistic director, is a partner organization. The national parks maintain the site, and the foundation does the programming. Wow, um, that's really that's really interesting. I'm going to switch now over to talking about the play because Beyond the Horizon is O'Neill's first full-length play and won him his first Pulitzer. What do you think made the board award the prize to this play? You know, there's two things that come to mind for me, and one would be that in 1920, there really was not an American tragedy genre. And and in many ways, you could say that Beyond the Horizon is America's first true tragic play. And so I think that probably, uh, you know, made quite an impression on the, the Pulitzer folks. And I'd also say that, that what makes it very American, there's a couple of things that come to mind for me, but, but it's set on a family farm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even 100 years you know, a hundred years later, you can't get more American sounding than that. Uh, <laughs> sure. you know, associations of honesty and hard work and all that sort of thing. But also the nature of the play, the idea of this horizon and this aspirational quality and the idea that, that over the horizon, uh, there's always boundless opportunity. And I think that seems to be very American in our thinking, too. And so I think it just really jumped out at that time as, as a, a, a real tragedy being produced in America. And that was just kind of a novelty back then. Well, why do you think it isn't as well known today or, or isn't as done as much as some of his other early plays? Well, actually, my view on you know the, the what gets done is, is it generally the, the plays that he wrote here at, at Dow House, and he lived uh, in this house um, from 1937 to 1944, and, and the, those titles, uh, you know, Long Day's Journey and Moon from Begotten, et cetera, they've just cast such a large shadow over the rest of his work that I, I quite honestly think that most people relegate a lot of other plays, even Beyond the Horizon to some degree, and other plays for sure, as something, you know, inferior O'Neill or rough draft O'Neill and, mm. and uh, you know, not worth producing. That's one of my bailiwicks is to, here is to produce the lesser known O'Neill plays since he wrote 51 plays. And I really feel like there's only a few of them get, that get regular treatments. And uh, I like to see which of the earlier ones can, can fly also. Had you seen a production of Beyond the Horizon b- before you decided to stage it? No, I, ha- I hadn't actually. Uh, I mean, I've seen I've seen uh, you know pictures and stills, and I've read things about uh, previous productions. Uh, I did do a stage reading of it about five years ago, but no, I, ha- I had not. It, it, but but it it always struck me as as a um, as a good play. And actually, part of the reason I chose to do it this last year was that. During the pandemic, I've spent a lot of times here on the grounds at Dow House, and then the Dow House grounds is about 13 acres of open space, uh, rolling hills, and it's actually surrounded by another 5,000 acres of open space. Hmm. And with all, spending all this time in this kind of outdoor space, I really started thinking more creatively about trying to link uh, the O'Neill productions to the space and the land. And Beyond the Horizon seemed like a completely logical choice in that case because 
it has six scenes in it and three of them are outdoor scenes. And so I started thinking, wow, okay, this is a, this is kind of a play about the land. Um, besides the fact that the, uh, the theater space that we use here at Dallas is actually an 1890s barn. So hmm. uh, we're producing in a barn in a field already. So it kind of seems tailor-made for the world of Beyond the Horizon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What were some of the, the, the challenges or were there any challenges in uh, mounting out the production? I had thought that one of them was going to be uh, the change in scenery, but that doesn't seem to have been a problem, or was it? Um, well, I, I'd say, you know, one of the biggest challenges was that um, I'm, a, I'm a theater maker by practice, and during the pandemic, I sort of tried to teach myself to become a filmmaker as well. And uh, it's kind of, you know, like a lot of people, I'm looking for solutions to the limitations of the times we're in and uh, working with people people outdoors or trying to create experiences outdoors or with fewer people involved in a project became really important to me. So I'd say my first challenge was just to figure out how to make a film of it, because that's what we did last year. We made a film of Beyond the Horizon, but then we also, because the situation allowed, we then did some live performances, kind of site-specific, where we had our audience moving around the grounds and experiencing different scenes of the play. So the first challenge was learning to make it as a film, uh, and all the, all that goes into that, oh boy, wind is your enemy, trust me. Um <laughs> But but uh, yeah, I think the mostly it was just, uh, you know, trying to do things safely because of the times we're in and feeling very fortunate, actually, that I had uh, a space that allowed for for that kind of creation. I actually during the pandemic had a nice conversation with somebody I know who uh, was telling me at the time that they were uh, limited to their Manhattan one room apartment to create. And I happened to be up here at Dallas at the time, and I just looked around and said, oh, my God, I've got a film lot. I need to use this. <laughs> One of the the challenges that I thought about when I read the play was uh, the child, who has a lot to do in the play. So how did you work around that? Well... You know, with a lot of O'Neill's plays, um, one of my remedies to small children is to shrink them and make them as small as possible. <laughs> and so in this, in this case, um, I turned Mary, who I believe could be like about a, a six, seven, eight-year-old in the script, uh, I made her into an infant. Uh-huh. So her presence was felt. You heard her crying. You saw her bundled, you know, self in people's arms. But I didn't I didn't rely on the dialogue uh, that she had, uh, you know, where she says, daddy, this and daddy, that I tried to kind of convey everything else through the idea that it was a toddler uh, who was preverbal. Um, that was my solution. Smart one. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. A lot of headaches averted, I think. <laughs> Were there other changes along that line that you had to make, particularly in terms of making it? play to a 21st century audience? Well, well one, one thing I'd say is, is traditionally, and this comes out of the original Broadway production, I believe, where the play was actually rewritten by the lead actor, uh, not, not completely, but with O'Neill's permission, they worked on it together. And it kind of gave this over, well, this central emphasis to the tragic uh, story of Robert Mayo, you know, the, the, the character who's looking at the horizon and dreaming of something better. But I was much more interested in, in telling the story of a tragic generation, 
because in my estimations, Robert Mayo and his brother, Andrew Mayo, and Ruth Atkins, the love interest and, and part of this sort of triangle, uh, the girl next door, so to speak, um, they all have tragic stories uh, in this play. And so I really sought to balance out the tragedy. And, and the way I felt like it became relevant or more relevant as we worked on it was I really thought it became a story about uh, parental expectations, uh, parents who uh, expected their kids to do certain things, but then when their kids didn't, didn't react well. But I also thought, you know, a lot of the tragedy is based on the fact that the characters uh, had uh, very little self-knowledge. They made choices very impulsively and didn't really think through whether it was a good choice for them because they didn't really, I, I don't think they really understood who they were or what they really wanted. Um, and they have horrible communication skills. Um, <laughs> I, it's, am it's amazing how many times in this play people say, oh, let's not talk about that now. Or uh, uh, I'm not going to, I'm going to save them from that information. And, and just, uh, or so much uh, difficulty communicating. And I, that seems very modern. I feel like we're very divided in certain ways and people have a lot of assumptions about each other. They, we all fill the void of what we think about other people in a lot of cases without enough information and, and having a poor channel of communication uh, between other people. And that, I think that's modern. I think that's uh, pertinent 100 years ago. I think that's probably a universal. What about the character of Ruth? I, I know O'Neill has sort of a dicey, maybe, reputation for his treatment of women. And she she can come off as, well, not pleasant. She breaks up the brothers. She's not a great mom. She hounds her husband. Did you have to adjust her in any way? Uh, unfortunately, in the text, she has less dialogue to basically explain her position than the two other male roles. And so um, my approach to that was, especially with the filming of this, was to give her a lot more visual time huh. so that you saw what was going on with her. And a lot of times the line was the, the Robert's line or Andrew's line, but I chose to put the camera on Ruth to show what she was experiencing at, the, at that moment. And I think in some ways it, it, it helps flesh out her story so that she is an equal uh you know, equal participant, equal partner, and and has her say. I, I I was also struck by, and I tried to emphasize how uh, all the responsibility on her shoulders. Um, you know, yes, you know, she doesn't seem like a good mom, but I'd also I think you could also look at that, and I tried to portray that as she was an overstressed, overworked uh, woman who had a lot of uh, weight on her shoulders and not much help from her husband. And in some ways, I feel like her tragedy in the play is a tragedy of the time she lived in, in that she had so few options. I mean, she has to keep hitching her star to one of these guys to see how she can make it through the future. And, and that's part of her tragedy. And I tried to really bring out, I mean, even, even at the end of the film, Andrew is saying some lines about how he feels and the future. And I just put the camera on Ruth's face and we just watch what she's, what's going on with her. Because I felt like at the end of the play, she there were junctures earlier in the play where she made decisions that turned out badly. I liked to think that at the end, what well, Robert has died, 
And and it seems logical that, that Andrew, the other brother, is going to marry Ruth. And I wanted her to turn away and to <laughs> look at the horizon herself and wonder, is that what she really wants or would that really work for her? Or is there something else out there for her? Hmm. Is this film available for our listeners if they want to see it? Yes, if they go to the the Eugene O'Neill Foundation website, which is eugeneoneill.org, it is uh, linked to that website. Oh, that's great. That's great. And and we'll also put that link in our show notes so that uh, people can see it there and just click on it. Fantastic. What was the response of the live audience? I mean, how did people... Well, just receive this play that's so seldom seen. I, I think they they actually had a very positive response, and it's hard to s- decide which part of the response was response to the actual play, and which part of it was just a response to the idea of being liberated mm. from the shackles of the pandemic and being able to experience something live. But I think people really bought into and appreciated the idea that we. Uh, place the play at different locations on the grounds of Dow House so that they felt the uh, the beauty um, of the backdrops. I mean, actually, we, we had we had a great scenic designer for this play. It, it was called the Lost Trompas Hills, um, <laughs> but the, the the outdoors were just beautiful, and and so I think people were really appreciating the way the play interacted with the place and the the scenery, and and they felt I think they I think they understood the 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 balance of. The tragedy falling on multiple shoulders and and the fact that none of these characters are bad people. They all just make decisions based on a lack of self-knowledge, poor communication, a lot of assumptions about each other, and it leads, unfortunately, to tragedy. And I think people really got that. Now, clearly, this was an important play for O'Neill. It's his first full-length play and the reception it got. But how does it figure in the rest of his career because this is a pretty naturalistic play and he sort of ventures off before returning to a more naturalistic uh, kind of storytelling at the end. Yeah, yeah. He, he uh, you know, the way I, I do think of, I mean, the way you've described his, his trajectory where he really kind of took a different turn in the 20s and he really explored expressionism. And a lot of those plays are, are you know, infinitely um, theatrical and interesting that way. Uh, and then you're right at Dow House, he tended to come back to something that seemed more realistic. I, I think of all of them as very deeply psychological and some of them just have different kind of constructs and the way they approach being psychological, but they're all very, like I, I've, I've directed 28 of O'Neill's 51 plays. Wow. And, and, yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> and 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 I I now find myself borrowing, like in a realistic play, I'll say, wait a second, there's something expressionistic about the sequence. I'm going to see if it works. And I borrow his strategies from other plays and vice versa. You know, I, and I, sometimes I find I, I, I find more realism, you know, or uh, to be explored in what would have traditionally been seen as a very expressionistic experimental play. But, but, but yeah, it really did put him on the map. You know, the one thing I think about besides the, 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 the awards he got and the way it kind of launched him on Broadway, I'm also aware that this is the only uh, big success that he had that his father saw before his father died. And yes. I know that was a big deal to O'Neill. He actually came and 
I was really moved by the experience of seeing this play. So I, I it's a there I you know it's obviously it, it was kind of launching it launched the, the launched the ship for him and uh, and he went on a, went on a journey uh, in a lot of different places but yeah I, I think if that's that's the thing that maybe it put the idea of him and tragedy uh, together in sort of the zeitgeist yeah well thank you so much for talking uh, with us uh, about it and uh, I know I am and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are going to be looking forward to seeing uh, your production of it. So, uh, so thanks for doing it. And thanks for talking to us about it. Oh, thank you very much. I enjoyed it a lot, Jen. Thank you. And thank you for listening. I hope you'll come back next time and that you'll listen to all the other Broadway radio podcasts. And if you aren't already doing so, that you'll consider making a contribution to support our work, which you can do at patreon.com slash broadwayradio.